Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to this special live episode of What Matters, coming to you from the German state of North Rhine-Westphalia's EU offices in Brussels. My name is David Weston. I'm Editor-in-Chief at Foresight Climate and Energy. And with me on stage are my esteemed and knowledgeable co-hosts, Jan Rosenau from the Regulatory Assistance Project and Michaela Hull from Agora Energy Vendor. Hi team, we're in the same room together again. How nice. We are. Um, I think the last time I was in Brussels uh, in the similar setting was actually in March, wasn't it, at Solar Power Europe. And these live recordings are actually much more fun than the ones we do online. Absolutely, much more fun. Michaela, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm equally excited, although it felt today like the first autumn Brussels day, also a little bit, I think. It has. It's so, definitely a bit of a chill in the, the air. infrastructure discussion to open the autumn season of EU policies. Excellent. Um, we also have an equally esteemed panel of experts uh, joining us on the stage. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome Dennis Hessling, uh, who joins us again on the podcast. He was our first guest back in 2021, uh, but this time in his new role as head of gas, coal and power at the International Energy Agency. Uh, Katharina Umfenbach, head of infrastructure and energy systems at the German Energy Agency, DINA. Uh, and last but no, by no means least, he's the CEO of Libra Associates, managing partner of Eco Pragma Capital and host of rival energy podcast, Cleaning Up <laughs> Leadership in an Age of Climate Change. It's Michael Liebreich. Please welcome them, everyone to the stage. So the, the title of our panel is uh, Phasing Down Fossil Gas. Uh, scaling up a multi-vector system. Uh, Mission Impossible. Uh, I want to come to Dennis first. Mission Impossible? It has to be done. Um, I think it's, it's very difficult. I think Michael mentioned a number of the complications also from our teaser introduction. It's a really complex transition. Uh, it's not something you can do easily by adding a few uh, solar PV installations and electric vehicles. It requires a lot of coordination. Uh, now, the EU is normally, let's say, relatively good in coordinating things, but this is a complex one because it combines, on the one hand, coordination, on the other hand, also the knowledge that you need to do it properly, an open approach to competing, sometimes competing technologies, um, and then um, vested interest um, companies in there who have their own interests at, at stake as well. And they combine this with a knowledge position, there's governance questions in there, so it's a really complex one to get, uh, to get right. Katharina, how about you, from a German perspective at least? Well, I don't think I can add... Uh Another perspective is that it's very, very hard. Um, if we look at the electricity system, um, uh, Michael already mentioned that, the expansion we have to do on all levels, and I think that's important too, it's not only the transport grid, it's also the distribution grid where we have to see a sea change. And that means not only more cables and more work and more open streets, um, it also means capacity on the institutional side to get permission processes uh, on all levels, get them quicker, make sure that um, the investments 
preempt future developments so that we don't open the street again two years later, things like that. And uh, of course, the other big issue, and we will come to that, is how do we also shrink existing um, uh, industries in a viable way um, that survives societal dispute as well? If I could come in here, um, it's a question for both you, Dennis, and Katerina. Um, you know, traditionally, we have um, made policy and regulation in silos, right? We have had an electricity regulation, we had regulation for gas grids, we've managed distributing grids in a different part of government and regulators. Uh, in the future, of course, there's going to be a lot more sector coupling, and Michael has described you know, some of the trends we're going to see, electrification, new types of gases being used. You know, how are we going to make sure that regulatory agencies, policymakers, are actually ready for the task of addressing this in a much more coordinated fashion, integrated fashion, rather than creating the wrong incentives because they operate in silos? I think here the EU answer will be we have the 10E regulation, which is integrated, uh, so it works across uh, electricity and gas at least, um, that's the start. But you see also in the way the 10E has been designed that it has the, the history of the silos um, included there. So you have the roles for NCOE for electricity, NCOG for gas, we have two separate institutions. We have one ACER for European energy regulation, why do we have two uh, industry associations for the infrastructure planning, it makes it more complex. It's not impossible. I mean, you could, with a lot of goodwill um, and, and the right incentives, you could uh, plan this properly also at European level. But it's very complex and it takes time and it's not sure that it will work. You see now the, the improvements the Commission made in the last... Um, 10 uh, revision. So we have an increased role for ACER. We have uh, more stakeholder involvement. We have a scientific advisory board on climate change coming in in an advisory role, saying, is this sufficient to reach net zero? And those are all good improvements. But the question is, are they enough? And we don't know it yet because we have to go through the process that takes multiple years to get there. And then we can see if the end result is good enough for this net zero future, yes or no. Uh, Dennis, I would beg to disagree. I think you, when you were still in ACER, you published a study where basically you knew that it wasn't good enough and you said there needs to be better regulatory scrutiny. And if I can bring up the draft gas 10-year network development plan that we have seen this year, or Katarina will have seen it, the German gas distribution grid planning, we see that it is not enough to only rely on the technical skills of the operators, right? I mean, um, what the gas, there is, a, there is a mismatch and there is a need to have a, a more open discussion where experts come in that tell you how little hydrogen is out there. Um, there's a need for a discussion where new stakeholders come in that come with new t solutions. I mean, I would probably agree with Michael. We will never know what is out there, but at the moment it's literally impossible for those voices to come in. So what could we do short term to improve the quality of the discussion? So I, if, if I might come in here, I, I would also, Dennis, you're going to t uh, attract a lot of flack, I'm afraid, it looks like, uh, uh, in this conversation. I would also disagree because I think that um, there's something fundamentally impossible, sort of epistemologically impossible about top-down planning. As you immediately said, we've got the EU 10E and we got this and we got that process. The real problem is that this is going to be resolved at the place basis. This is going to be resolved in you know, hundreds of thousands of villages and towns and, and, and regions and so on across Europe. Um, and, 
you're not going to be able to centrally plan exactly what contribution of this or what that. And, you know, you said it will take years. It'll take years to create a framework. It'll take even more years to that to, for that to get down to the sort of street level. And that's where we really need it. Because, you know, it's very, very simple. You know, uh, you've, got to, you've got to switch off and decommission a gas distribution uh, link, as you said. It's all got to go. But you've also got to make sure that you have enough electricity at the right time, not at the European level, but at the level of that street. Who's going to plan that? The answer is that local council, that street, some sort of community level um, activity is going to coordinate the removal of gas and the arrival of more electricity. And then it's going to respond to, ah, maybe we've got some geothermal or some ground source, or maybe we could do this. Maybe we've got a factory with some waste heat. Maybe we can extend a district heating. It's got to be done at a place basis. And there's, at the moment, this desire to centralise the decisions and to sort of, you know, rely on somebody up, well, somebody here in Brussels to sort of start a process. It's entirely the wrong way around. Don't, don't get me wrong, I, I agree with most of what you said. Um, I didn't want to pretend that the EU planning covers everything. It's impossible and it shouldn't, you shouldn't even try. Many things will have to be decided at local or regional level and you need this integrated planning also at local level. But on the EU level, this is also an EU discussion, what can be done? That's the 10 regulation. So the question to your, uh, sorry, the answer to your question about what, what has the EU done and is it sufficient? At EU level, there is legislation in place to cover the EU part of the planning, but then you need to complement that with the national, regional and local planning. And that's why you come in with your story about the local uh, specificities and how can they solve it and how can they decommission the grids when it's needed. Katharina, please. Well, in Germany, we're trying to get this top-down, bottom-up uh, thing right. Um, we have a system development strategy. That's what Dana is helping the economic ministry developing. That's based on energy system modeling and has sort of a, a broad vision of how the whole energy system could look like. And the idea is that it then serves, it doesn't replace, it serves as a compass for the specific grid planning exercises in gas, soon to be integrated with the hydrogen grid uh, for the electricity grid, and then also as an orientation for the municipal heat planning. That's what, what is now mandatory or will be mandatory very soon in Germany, that all first the big cities and then the smaller municipalities as well plan out how they're going to go to net zero um, for heating. And that's where these decisions will take place. But what we are, um, what we I think need is sort of an iteration between this bottom up and the top down because we could also end up having lots of hydrogen demand coming up from this municipal heat planning, they all say, oh, hydrogen is nice, and it adds up to a volume that we can never provide at national level. So the same could happen with biomass. So we need an iteration between the two. The challenge, of course, is that that takes time. Just to follow up, Katarina, on the German heating law, which I'm sure everybody in, in this room and, and who will, all the listeners will have followed, to some extent, very controversial discussions these, this year. Uh, and the, the compromise, just to kind of maybe explain it a little bit, has been that municipalities who are obliged to provide detailed plans for decarbonizing heat have to do that first before the new law will actually um, hit consumers, which will require 65% renewables for new heating systems. We had something similar in the Netherlands, of course, for a while where municipalities had to do heat plans. And uh, just to play devil's advocate here, I mean, isn't there the risk that you just delay and, and something that has to happen? You know, every single heating system that we installed today will run for 15, 20 years. And, um, you know, 
what guarantee do we have that these plans will actually come forward on time? Uh, and also, will they be independent? Yeah, I have seen um, actually community heat planning being done, uh, in some cases funded by um, vested interest groups. So uh, just to maybe um, be a little more critical of, of what you said, Katerina, how, how do you make sure this actually happens in the way you described? Well, I think these risks are all there. Uh, there is no point in, in denying them. Um, what uh, we have to acknowledge, and I think that's the other problem with top-down planning, that this happens in a political space. This is not only a technocratic process, and the heating law is the best example. It's the outcome of a political process. I think what is key is that we have um, uh, iterations, that we look at the outcome, that we evaluate the outcome all the time, and the other key element, I think, is institutional capacity. As I already said, for, for grid planning, we also need that for those municipal heat plants. Um, and the government is already funding a huge center to support them with expertise and, and, and to help guide them. Uh, there will be technical guidance uh, for those processes. I think that's the only way, but because we cannot fully replace it, I think, with a top-down process, as we have seen from the political debate uh, that uh, came about when, when we tried it with the first draft of the law. So now we have to make sure that these processes deliver the best result, and if they don't, we have to correct course. But what do we do in concrete? If I had a look at this proposal from the gas distribution operators from Germany. So basically, the message is everything can be done with hydrogen and biomass. We don't know exactly how much. And the promises by 2035 in Germany, there will be 100% H2 in parts of the grids. The amount that would be needed for German, if I only calculate hydrogen, for German gas use would mean Germany would max out the 20 million tons of hydrogen the EU has set for itself and much more. I mean, we need to talk. <laughs> There is a mismatch here, right? So that's on the supply side, but we also need to talk about the demand side. I mean, this is a fantasy discussion frankly, because, you know, we went through this, and I was going to say that uh, when I wanted to come in, that the experience from the UK, uh, where we tried to do um, a hydrogen village trials, just, you know, because at the end of the day, 44 reports that Jan has reviewed all said, forget hydrogen, basically, and still this hydrogen, it's, you, nobody can manage to get a stake through its heart. It's like it's, it, it just rises from the grave every time uh, and captures people's imagination. And so we have to do, the only thing that will stop that is a trial, and we tried to do a village trial, and the problem was the information that was being given by, frankly, local authority government and the incumbent gas companies was simply misleading, right? If you do hydrogen, what our, for safety perspective, if you do hydrogen, you have a hydrogen appliance anywhere in the house, cooking, heating, uh, boiler, whatever, then you have to have ventilation, and ventilation of a type we don't have even in drafty British homes, right? You have to have a vent, a 10 centimetre by 10 centimetre open vent in every room with an appliance, right? That is what you need. And anybody who works with hydrogen will tell you that they are very uncomfortable about having hydrogen in a home. And we used to have town gas and we used to have a lot of explosions and very leaky houses, right? And so that's the reality. The physics says it is... Uh, and that's before you get to the supply side of the efficiency, the availability. Right? We're having another fantasy discussion about repurposing the gas grid. Right? Can you put hydrogen into natural gas pipes? That's all 
and all hydrogen ready. And of course, the analysis says that you can, right? You have to change all of the valves, all of the flanges, all of the compressors. Hydrogen is physically different, right? It's very bulky, right? You also, and this is what they don't want to talk about, have to drop the pressure, which means that the compression loads go up by approximately an order of magnitude. So what they're trying to do is to say, yes, of course we can put hydrogen in our pipes, just give us a few billion euros and we'll do that. And when they do that, they will then say, oh, by the way, now you need to increase the volume. We are actually, this pipe can't do it and we need to build a new pipe. So they're trying to get uh, everybody's kind of hand in the mangle. They're trying to get the beginnings of a hydrogen heating industry and they're trying to get politicians committed and plans committed. And then the, 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 the request, the asks, will start to come in and the money will start to have to flow. This is, a, it, it's an it, we've got to get away from that. We've got to get back down to how do you decarbonize an individual village or location re in reality based on real physics, real thermodynamics, real supply chains. And then the study after study shows it will go nowhere. You made a really interesting point there, Michael. <clears throat> and um, I want to just follow up on that. Uh, my colleague uh, Megan Anderson is actually in the audience here today. She's, she's led a report, um, I think last year it was, where we found that in Germany, the gas grid is uh, still being built out at an accelerated rate. The investments are up, not down. And I guess in light of what we just heard, you know, how can we make sure that regulators who face these requests, you know, where the gas companies will come and will say, we want to invest this many millions, billions in the gas grid. You know, what mandate do the gas regulators actually have to then say, well, hang on, you know, this isn't in line with the net zero transition plan. Um, maybe, Dennis, a question for you. you know, do we need a net zero mandate for regulators to make sure that they have the mandate to actually say, no, hang on, that doesn't make sense. We should invest that money elsewhere. It's, it's a very good question, an interesting suggestion. I think traditionally uh, regulators, at least in the EU, come from a situation where they have to focus on efficiency of investments and market integration. And that was very useful. It has been brought lots of benefits, but it's maybe insufficient to address the new questions that we're facing about the energy transition. And if you want to regulators to play a role, and I think they should play a role when it comes to investment, but also decommissioning, you need to make it explicit in the legal mandate. As long as regulators don't have a legal mandate, they can't assess a proposal on this basis. So it goes back to the policy level, goes back to the politicians saying, who do we want to decide about what? And if regulators should play a role, which I think they should, um, it needs to be explicit in the legal mandate. Can I, can I say also, very simply, there should be a moratorium for five years on gas grid investment other than for safety. Very simple. <laughs> If I can take up this point, I think that's really key for all the options to be on the table, right? So if we look at this, you know, these mayors that, that, that have to orchestrate this, this process, right now in Germany at least, uh, the grid operators are still obliged to connect anyone who wants to connect. So that's the first thing uh, we have to change and Agora has put out a great study. Um, there, that's not the only issue. There's the issue of, of licensing and of, of the grid fees during the transition and obviously I think the, the heating bill discussion should make us all aware that there's also the question of social hardship. So what's with the last user on the line? How we, do we make sure that this person also has a warm house in the end? How do we make sure that there is enough time to prepare and so forth? So that, that is one key thing we have to um, put out there so that there is that all the options are actually 
you know, possible to decide for even the mayor. Uh, that's the first step. How do we get over the sort of momentum that's behind the this either hydrogen economy that Michael referred to in his um, keynote, which listeners can find in our show notes? Um, and there's a momentum there. There's lots of, obviously, investment going into ports and port infrastructure and gas infrastructure now, especially off the back of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, Europe really racing to try and find new sources of gas. How do we get, and so let's bring in investment in jobs. Is it a good thing for politicians to support this from their point of view? How do we shift that into saying, look, this is probably mostly wasted money. We're going to have stranded assets. We're going to have all of this infrastructure that we're not going to use in 30 years' time, 20 years' time. I think what we see, if, if we look at the global scale, um, we see a significant gap between the announcements and the actual investments. So we'll probably report later this week, the SIEA, the Global Hydrogen Review, and you'll see there that the announcements are indeed significant. And politicians speak about the hydrogen economy and hydrogen investments. If you compare it to actual FID, actual investment uh, money on the table, it's very, very limited. So we're not even sure how far this is going to go. Now, as Michael also showed, we will need some green, clean hydrogen in the net zero system, but not copying everything that we have at the moment. So you have the other questions facing about the decommissioning of the grids and all that. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure the, the uh, issue is as big as it seems. If you look at the announcements, it looks very big. If you look at the investments, it's much, much smaller. But, but the issue is the delay, though, because what are these gas companies doing, these gas grid companies? They are investing heavily in their assets in the ground. And I don't know the situation around Europe, but in the UK, they get to earn 6.4% for 45 years on any money that they put in the ground. So for them, the delay is not a bug, it's a feature, right? It is something that is plays to their advantage. They can put billions of euros, pounds, dollars, whatever you want to call it, into the ground. And then... If the regulator and the politicians at some point turn around and go, oh, actually, you're going to have to decommission it, then they will simply say, fine. Just like your coal companies turned around and said, well, if you don't want our coal power station to run or our nuclear power station, you have to pay us. It's a ransom strategy, and that's why a moratorium on any investment other than safety-related is a great idea because that would say you're not going to get away with five years of confusing everybody, going to all the party conferences, buying all the politicians, telling people we've got a hydrogen economy, knowing that we haven't, but putting money in the ground that will then earn these guaranteed res returns and hold everybody hostage in the future. Because that's the game that's being played. Make Maybe no I wouldn't go as far as moratorium, but I, I have to say, whilst listening to the last 10, 20 minutes of you know remarks being made, uh, uh, we decided this, to have this event now also because we are in a critical phase of discussing the, the rules for the hydrogen and the gas package. And frankly it's a far cry away from the issues like how do we manage grid tariffs? How do we protect the last one? And I'm afraid even if, if um, there are not so many FIDs on actually hydrogen production, what we are seeing is a record amount of requests for public funding for hydrogen infrastructure projects that are not even based on actual market demand and that are not based um, on our consultation with those stakeholders that have not even a hydrogen source sometimes. And Acer, in its uh, opinion, could only say, well, um, you should do better. 
and maybe also a bit more transparent because on half of them we don't even cannot even assess the costs. I mean, this. We, we, we really need to revisit this because otherwise the money that we want to spend for clean is gone. So I wonder what that we still can do. You, you followed, so now it's a bit your old hat question. What we still can do in the context of the gas and hydrogen package to, to improve this. Yeah, that's a question about on ongoing negotiations. It's a difficult one to um, to answer for me from my perspective because I'm not involved in, in, in that part. Um, I think overall, uh, I, I was triggered by your comment about the moratorium. Uh, and it makes me think there's always a few exceptions. Security supply, if you want to get LNG, um, people need supplies at this moment. And for the moment, that's still gas. Now, that should be a tiny amount. It shouldn't be massive. And of course, you should look at the incentives that regulators give at the moment for new investments because overall, it needs to be uh, compliant with net zero. And we need to go there. Um, so yes, you should look the mandate, uh, but I, I wouldn't be as strict as what you're proposing. But there's another fantasy discussion going on around LNG supply, right? Where you're uh, you're having you're building LNG an LNG import hub in um, Wilhelmshaven, I think, um, and it's supposed to be bringing in ENG synthetic uh, methane from the US. Right? And the synthetic methane from the US, somehow, by the way, this thing in Wilhelmshaven is going to magically switch to importing hydrogen or ammonia. No, engineering, no engineer will, will tell you that this is, this is really a thing. Uh, and the ENG, the synthetic methane um, that is coming from the US, if you look at the US Infrastructure uh, Reduction Act, that subsidizes each million BTU of natural gas a commodity which in the US is worth $2.70 and in Europe is worth 5 or $7, and it pours $60 of IRA subsidies, Inflation Reduction Act subsidies, into each million BTU. And so you really think, does anybody really think that that is a solution to bringing in, to, to decarbonizing Europe, bringing in synthetic methane that with a subsidy of $60 for every... Uh, a couple of bucks worth of commodity. I mean, these are discussions that... Uh, I mean, I know that there's a political... You, you said that it's the result of a political process. But if the political process is essentially working on fantasy physics, fantasy thermodynamics, and fantasy economics, you'll get to the wrong place. It's as simple as that. Uh, there was just a description of facts. Um, that, that's been... That, that, you know, it's a parliamentary democracy. But what we do in the system development strategy is that we have energy system modeling, and we update it every two years. And I think that's, and this modeling, to make that clear, clearly shows that there is uh, no role for hydrogen in heating, for instance, up to 2030, obviously, because there will be no infrastructure. And even after that, it's very unlikely due to the costs and to the limited supply. So th that's, uh, you know, that's a really cl clear sort of um, a basis that's provided there. But then... You also have to, I think we have to accept to some point that there are different visions and you can say they're not evidence-based and that's also part of the public debate that's ongoing, but it's still parties that have been voted into the government and that have other priorities. Again, I would say uh, the, the key element is that you evaluate regularly and see if that's still the right plan and if we are making any advances towards those technology dreams. And if they don't come to realization, then you can shift course. The only issue with that is that it takes up time that we don't have. 
I would just like to follow up on, on, on your point, Katerina, because the idea of evidence-based policy uh, you know, seems to be out of the window in many countries now, right? Where um, you know, if you work in the sector for decades and, and you know the detail and you see politicians making statements like the ones on Michael Liebrecht's slides early on in his talk, you really start to question you know, whether you know, the kind of work that Dana is doing, the work that we do, looking at evidence, looking at scenarios, looking at cost, you know, whether or not that work is still important. I think it is but I'd like to hear your perspective, how we make sure that you know, rather than just having politicians with different visions that are not based on evidence and may actually be misleading and, and dangerous, how do we make sure that we still have a very robust yet evidence-based debate and policymaking grounded in evidence? Jan, if you reach 50 in your study count, you get a rebate on blending incentives in EU law, okay? <laughs> <laughs> But blending, we can do blending as well, by the way. But, but, yeah. Well, it's a difficult spot. What, what can I say? Uh, I think we cannot give up on evidence-based policymaking. That, that would be terrible. But I think we also have to acknowledge that we have to bring those arguments in the political debate, not only once, not only twice, but again and again. I think we can also not be arrogant and say, let's do just the technocratic thing and we plan everything top-down, and then what happens? happens is that you get a difficult situation like we had with the heating bill that almost you know ripped the government apart um, because there was uh, and you know there was debate in the media and you can say um, that was not evidence-based but it's still there it's still a fact that it influences people and I think a key thing that we're realizing now is that we're moving the energy transition into people's homes and that's a whole different story than phasing out coal power plants or even nuclear plants and we have to take them along in some way but can I suggest that you know what really is needed is a sort of Titan vendor in the energy vendor in that you know there was this wake-up call um, in German you know, foreign relations, dependence on Russia, the belief that Russia could be a good actor, and suddenly that assumption is just gone and there's a real wake-up call. But, this, but in, in energy, there's been no real wake-up call. And so you have these kind of fantasy discussions about fantasy solutions um, that, led, that have led to, I mean, let's be absolutely clear, have led to the shutting of Germany's largest single sources of clean electricity, which is the nuclear power stations, shut with an incredibly poorly informed debate that went on for decades and everybody's saying oh well it's part of a political process and etc etc and now we've got the same thing you know this is this is you know at some point particularly Germany but all of Europe has to stop you know with this fantasy discussion you know I go back to the the Lisbon agenda right in the year 2000 Europe decided very portentously that it was going to be the most advanced digital economy in the world by 2010 and it was even five years later completely obvious it was failing. The solution was more committees. And five years after that, it was clear that it completely and utterly failed. And that, I'm afraid, is where you're headed with your energy policy. And, and you know, we can sit there and say, well, that's politics and the rest of it. Or we can say, actually, we're really worried about climate change. And, you know, you can say, we've got the RFNBO policy that comes out of and it's all blah, 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 blah. You're going to absolutely categorically fail to meet even 1% of RFNBOs, right? Because there isn't the hydrogen and the costs are ridiculous and the hydrogen package is minusculely too small and so on. And we can spend five years waiting to find out 
Um, or, or we can say, no, so seriously, we need to up our game here. So where, do the, where does the decision-making need to take place? We've said it can't really come, well, it can come from European level, but it takes too long to filter down onto the streets and the uh, local areas. Um, it can't really be bottom-up because people maybe don't have the expertise or are being influenced by national governments that have vested interests or um, ideological differences. So where, does this, this, where are these decisions being made? I'd like to say on how they should be made, because basically in research for this event, I realized the amount of councils and formations and lobby groups that there are in Germany, where you have a combination of publicly owned municipality, this, uh, you know, grid operators and cities sitting together with gas incumbents, and basically, I mean, where is technology often hide when you once need it? If all they say is we will replace everything one by one with hydrogen. I don't think that's compatible with the, the mandate they have been given. It should be forbidden that a city can sit in such a lobby group and waste their time instead of thinking about how to really decarbonize their, their heating system. I think we have to rein in because that's where the fake information and comes from that then is impossible to beat at some point, like Katarina said. But but how is it acceptable that we have these kind of formations? They are paid even from the from the levies of the gas uh, consumer these days, these campaigns. I mean, this should not be allowed. This should not be allowed. Maybe but I can't comment on the German situation, but in, in general, let's say, what I've seen at EU level, um, what works well, and it sounds very boring, but it's, it's quite effective. Also, your, your question about the evidence-based policy. It's difficult to bring all the technological arguments to the highest political level, yeah. because there you, you're lost in techno technologies and in numbers and, and, and people hear different things, different reports, uh, and, then they, and then they get lost. But you can bring it to a more well, technical level, once there's a political mandate in place. So the politicians should decide on what is the ultimate goal. If it's climate neutrality, which it should be, then who gets to decide what and how, that's your question, how do we do it? So do we have an open process where we are obliged, we institutions in general, let's say, whether it's national, European, are obliged to put forward draft proposals, do a consultation, sounds very boring, but it works in practice because you get the input from all the different stakeholders, from industry for sure, but also from NGOs, from academia, from climate councils, and then as an institution you have an obligation to consider all this in a transparent way, say given all the evidence, and we'll weigh the evidence in an independent way, this is our best decision within the legal mandate. I would like to slightly change the topic, if I may, and uh, bring up the topic of resilience, because this is one of the arguments that is often being made. So if we shift from an infrastructure that is currently heavily dependent on gaseous fuels, um, or even solid fuels, uh, to one where increasingly we use electricity, which is what most of the scenarios, if not all of the scenarios, uh, including the ones by the AEA, suggest, we, um, of course, run the risk that if we increasingly rely on one infrastructure, that if that infrastructure gets affected negatively by bad weather or by cyber attacks or whatever the event might be, that there could be real consequences. So how do we manage that resilience if we shift more of our energy use to one type of infrastructure uh, and have less diversity? Difficult question, but I'm interested in your views. So I think 
we have to acknowledge that we're not starting in a good place. You know, it's not like we've got a very resilient system now, because you know, even now, if the electrical system you know, goes down, then the gas system goes down with it. So it's not like we've got one system that would keep everything running you know, brilliantly, and, 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 and we don't have redundancy at this point, and we won't have redundancy in the future. So I think we've got to invest um, very heavily in resilience, and there's a part of that a lot of that will be you know, individual players will invest in that. People will have batteries at home or vehicle to grid and companies will invest. They'll have fail-safe plans. They got a shock during the uh, supply chain crunch uh, coming out of COVID. And so a lot, there's a lot of stuff will happen you know, by private players. But there is a role of government, central government, local governments in delivering resilience and in, in um, I don't want to say paying for it because in the end, citizens pay for it but in um, collecting those funds. So, you know, I, I said in my remarks, and there'll be a link in the show notes, I know that what David is going to say, um, that, um, you know, all the stuff that is up to about 48 hours of outage or of variability will actually, it's relatively easy to get through. We'll have interconnections, we'll have demand response, we'll have vehicle batteries, grid batteries, uh, we'll, all sorts of ways of dealing with that. But after two days, it gets really, really hard uh, batteries don't work for things that, you know, it will, too, will be too expensive. And so we'll need interconnections more than are normally required, or we'll need hydrogen storage in salt caverns, which not every country has got, or we might need uh, ammonia storage, uh, which, or, or, or also there's all, lots of hydrogen derivatives could find a use in, in uh, long duration storage. But individual private operators are unlikely to put enough money into that. And that's where government is going to have to say, just as the US has a strategic petroleum reserve, um, just as we keep um, more fire engines than are needed in case there's a strike in, in most countries, or snow clearing machinery, you know, no company invests in you know, enough snow clearing. That, there are certain things that we need government to actually um, do. And we are a million miles away from the political processes that say, well, maybe Europe-wide, maybe we're just going to spend 10 billion euros making sure that the lights never go off. And by the way, success is that they never go off. And some politician will say that that 10 billion is wasted. And that's fine, or it has to be fine from a political economy perspective. And that's going to be up to the political process to kind of moderate. So we're talking about, in, in this panel, we set out to talk about maybe retiring gas or phasing out gas. Is there then still a case to keep gas around for those instances and keep the gas infrastructure in place for those instances? Some of it, yes. Well, what you don't need is gas distributed to homes because that system, which, by the way, is the leaky one and is the one that, you know, that with a, a huge amount of the costs, um, what you need is, is potentially just keep unabated gas generators and the high pressure, some elements of the high pressure network. I would say, yes, let's keep it. Because you know, if we use unabated gas 3 or 5% of the time in 15 years, I think if that's it, most of the people in this room will say that's a huge, huge win. Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this, and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe.
Um, and so what can we do with the infrastructure then that we don't need for the, you said, the distribution grids? How can we, do we need to rip it all out? Can we recycle it? Can we repurpose it for other uses? Well, I can come in here maybe. I mean, there is, there is a cost to this as well. And there's a live debate now in the United Kingdom where I live um, about the cost of decommissioning the gas grid. Um, and again, this, this is being uh, used in the public debate as an argument not to decommission it because there is a cost associated with it. Of course, if you could put that cost in perspective, then it's a different, it's a different picture. Um, but no, you can't just leave it in the ground for safety reasons. I mean, I have seen some, um, I think, rather crazy suggestions to repurpose it for district heating. I don't think that's quite the right pipe size, um, and it's not, not being made to um, uh, you know, run on very hot water or even steam. Um, but I think it's, it's a sort of discussion that we need to have. You know, what do we do with that infrastructure? Where do we still need it? Can it be repurposed um, to some extent, and how? But I think we haven't even started that discussion in Europe. We're just at the beginning of that. I think there's two points which relate to this. Um, one is, it goes back to the planning question. Uh, once you get rid of the gas distribution network, at least big parts of it, you need something else to offer to those consumers and make sure nobody's left behind. The other thing is the financial question. Um, the sooner you start this, your point about the timing, the easier it is because you need to re to um, depreciate the remaining asset value over the remaining time. If you still have 15, 20 years left, that's doable. If you wait for the last moment and you have maybe five years left, it becomes really expensive. So the time to discuss it is now, also including again the time to discuss who has the mandate to decide. It's up to, I think, up to the, it should be up to the regulators to in the end say, listen, we don't need this anymore here and we'll decommission it in this particular way with this financial structure over the next 20 years and then it will be over. So I, I don't know um, how long the depreciation is in European countries. But in the UK, it's 45 years. That's why the moratorium, if it is that sort of length, because you're right, you know, if it was, uh, if it was being depreciated over 15 years, that would be okay. But, you know, we've only got 27 years until we're supposed to have this, you know, uh, it's supposed to be at net zero. Um, Again, there's these sort of fantasy discussions going on because on the one, what, the, what the gas networks, what they're trying to do is inflate the decommissioning costs and say, oh, it's going to cost 100 billion and 200 billion and all this sort of stuff, right? Um, and, and therefore, since we can't afford that, that will fall to the state. And since the state can't afford that, we need to keep it. It's the most absurd discussion you can imagine. Because, of course, there is a very simple thing you can do with this. It's just fill it with foam. You can just put, you know, you can just put expanded foam into it and it's safe, right? So there's a very simple and cheap way. Frankly, there are probably better things to do with it. Um, you don't have to do district heating at high temperatures. You can do it at actually uh, like geothermal or, or ground source temperatures, 11, 12, 13 degrees. You might be able to reuse some of the pipes for that. You've got the, um, these companies are very good at digging up roads and putting infrastructure into homes. So if there was district heating or um, uh, ambient temperature geo ground source heat loops, then they should be well... It, what, Strategically, that's, the, that's what they should be doing, is instead of playing this hostage strategy, the distribution gas company should be saying, we want to put a heat pump in every home and supply it with you know, moderate temperature water from ground source. It's the same business model, but without the explosive gas, and they'll be very good at it, and that's what they should be doing. Um, but, but yes, we need to, we need, that's why the moratorium is at least gives the space to have that discussion. Do we decommission? Which bits do we... Because there are two ways we could decommission. We could say, your village is next in 2032, yours is next in 2037, yours is 20... Or we can just say, well, all of you by 2050. All of you by 2050 and just let stuff happen. And the problem, Katarina said it exactly, the problem with letting stuff happen 
is that the last people connected to the gas grid will be the poor people, right? Because they don't have access to the capital for the heat pump or the electrification of heating. And their standing charges, they will be bearing the charge. You know, as fewer and fewer people are connected, those standing charges, the amortization depreciation, will be paid by fewer and fewer and less well-off people. And it will become a huge, huge political bomb. Which has never been discussed so far Uh, since in Brussels that I am more aware of since the gas packet went out. Dennis, you disagree? It was discussed, it, it was discussed in Madrid uh, last year. Okay. And that Madrid is the European gas forum with industry, with NGOs. Um, there was a first discussion. And there were, there were discussions about the timeliness. So some were saying this is too early. Uh, I disagree. I think it was the right moment to discuss it. But it's a, it's a preliminary discussion saying, do we need this? Uh, how could, what could it look like? And do we need legislation in place? And it's a start. And it needs to start there. Can I add one more thing? That since If you're going to be discussing that, there's one other element that we've not mentioned yet in this debate. And I think we have to. And that is this famous hydrogen What is it going to cost? Because there's a few other things the gas industry doesn't want to talk about. They don't want to talk about what the hydrogen will cost, and they don't want to talk about nitrous oxides, and they don't want to talk about safety, right? But the, um, but the hydrogen cost one, there is this feeling that it's going to be, you know, it's, it's, it's basically it's going to be cheap. It's going to be just the same boiler as you've got, and it's going to be cheap. And I think that is, you know, we, we've had in the UK, you know, distinguished professor brackets of combustion claiming that the IEA says that the hydrogen will cost three pence per kilowatt hour, right? Not... Did you say that, right? Well, the IEA did say that, right? But about green hydrogen in 2050 in Morocco, right? Not hydrogen in, in this case, Ellesmere Port, because it was to do with the hydrogen village, um, retail. We need, to, we need to understand that hydrogen, retail hydrogen in the villages and towns and, and uh, areas around Europe is going to be a lot more expensive, two, three times more expensive than natural gas per heat unit, right? That has to be understood. That's the data that will change. You know, that, that's the thing that I think will make the evidence-based discussion really come alive. And people have to understand that hydrogen is not some safe haven default that you can always talk about. It's a very expensive very expensive running cost solution. It's also, by the way, very expensive to convert. No more, no cheaper, by the way, than heat pumps in, in converting homes. Michael, actually, the, the, the comment that you referred to from the professor was, in a, I think, in a response, uh, in a Guardian article, in response to the, the review of the 32 studies at the time. Um, but I wanted to bring up another point that we, no one has made so far, and I think that's, that's the demand side. And if we talk about infrastructure, we, we should not just talk about, is it gas, is it electricity, is it high or something else but you know I've worked on energy efficiency for almost 20 years and um, you know, find myself in discussions like this and it's it's completely ignored um, you know, within expert circles by the politicians and as we move towards a system where we need more flexibility Michael Liebrecht has actually shown us the, the importance of flexibility to create what he called deep resilience you know, more efficient buildings for example will help us enormously um, having that flexibility will provide more comfort reduce the cost the same goes of course for industrial uh, processes if you make them more efficient the problem gets a lot a lot smaller and the infrastructure requirements get smaller too so maybe a question for Katerina um, you know, how do we make sure in infrastructure uh, discussions um, planning regulation investment that the demand side um, you know, gets its fair hearing 
Well, for, there's different elements to that. I think the efficiency element, um, at least in our process, is clearly part of the solution, and it's made very clear that the infrastructure we, we would need to build if we didn't get more efficient in industry and buildings and so forth um, would be impossible to manage in the time frame we have left. So so that's that's a key element. Now, in our process, it's we don't talk about the measures. The measures, how do we get there? That's that's sort of the, the, the more difficult question. Um, just want to say that there's another element. One is technical efficiency and the other is sort of any sort of changes in use patterns, what's sometimes described as efficiency. Um, in, in our process, by demand of the NGOs, actually, in the stakeholder group, uh, they will the, the modeling experts will also run a model with sufficiency. So if people change their behavior, travel less, eat less meat, um, and, and voluntarily live in smaller spaces, for instance, which is also a key lever to reduce energy demand. Um, and we will see that as a, as a sort of, to show the size of that lever. Now, for the infrastructure planning, the, 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 the difficulty is that you want your system to be resilient to different pathways. And I think there's no willingness to risk sort of um, or to bet on behavior change that might not, you know, appear in practice. That's why um, I don't think it will inform sort of the, the dimensions. And I'm only talking of the sufficiency here. The efficiency element, I think, is, is absolutely key and priced in. Um, but but the voluntary behavior change that's more as a as a um, as a as to show society that there are other levers as well. Maybe on the efficiency, I, I fully agree. It will be the first source actually of, of addressing the whole issue. Uh, we think need to, there's a need to double the uh, efficiency targets. We also know it's it's easy to set targets but difficult to achieve them. So the building stock in Europe uh, relatively old. You have to go really literally building by building to to make this work. Uh, there's different ownership structures involved, different. Services services, it takes a lot of time and effort. So yes, it's, it's very important. It should be stressed much more. It's not maybe so sexy, but it's a, it should be the first source of um, well, making the whole energy system work. There are situations where it shouldn't be first. Um, you know, I'm looking at, uh, there's this thing, fabric first in, in housing. Sort of first you insulate, first you have better windows, first. And the problem with fabric first is it's very expensive. The, improving the fabric of a building costs tens of thousands of euros. And frankly, there are cases where I would just say, get a bigger heat pump. Because the heat pump, if you've got a, if you've got a home that's sort of somewhat leaky, you can reduce its energy use by 10% by putting in new windows and insulating and et cetera, et cetera. But if you can get it to a heat pump, you immediately reduce the energy use by a factor of three, four, four and a half. And so, you know, really, in some ways, we should only be improving the fabric if it enables the installation of a heat pump. And, uh, you know, of course, that's not quite as simple as that. There'll be some cold rooms that you have to deal with and all those sorts of things. But in general, I agree. I am very against the idea that, um, uh, uh, that of sort of demand reduction, of, of trying to make people feel where well, they need to live in a smaller space or they need to travel less. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, one of the most important things we're trying to optimise here is actually human progress, right? We don't want families living in little homes and not visiting granny and, and, and uh, not able to go on holiday and it taking six hours to get to where they want to go to instead of two. And so I'm a much bigger believer in sort of te technology solutions 
but also in this area of energy efficiency or energy productivity in the economy, price signals really matter, right? When um, the prices soared, people changed their behaviors as they had never done for decades. You know, Japan, uh, you know, dealing with Fukushima, people can change their behaviors, but they do it when it's an emergency, when they have to, and they do it on price signals. And there's, I want to also just say price signals again, so I haven't said it enough, price signals, because there's another piece of this, which is um, we've got to pass price signals on to consumers. Right? Part of the problem with the central planning approach is that we're just going to kind of solve everything and complexity is our enemy and we don't trust the markets. And so we don't pass on price signals because we're not sure how people... But they do respond, right? If the, you know, the, the, this sneeze in heat pumps, which really accelerated in the last couple of years, why? Well, because the gas prices went up hugely. So it's no surprise that people start going to energy-efficient um, solutions. And I think we've got to do it on a locational basis as well, a discussion that's just kicking off in the UK. And the incumbents hate, hate, hate it is locational marginal pricing. Right? Why? They want one electricity price across the whole country, the highest possible price that gets stuff done in the most difficult location, because then everything else is rent. Right? And that has to be eliminated. That rent has to be eliminated because it belongs to the consumer, the taxpayer. It doesn't belong to the energy companies. So we need to move to locational pricing. We need industry to flourish in places where there's lots of clean, cheap energy and maybe to be squeezed out of places, not to build factory extensions in places where there isn't abundant clean electricity and so on. And we won't get that unless we have a locational solution. And I don't think that that discussion, you know, in Europe, the sort of political trade winds are about homogenizing, making everything equal, bringing everything up to the same price, the same level, the same industry structures and so on. And we need to be talking about, no, the opposite. We need to, we need to kind of granularize and, and, and focus activity uh, at where appropriate. And locational pricing and time of day pricing passed on to consumers and to companies uh, otherwise, because the alternative to that is, is one of two things, either overinvestment in infrastructure, generation and transmission, or fantasy discussions about hydrogen. Do you want to defend the commission on locational pricing? Um, no, that's not, that's not my role here. But two things on, on, on what you said. Um, one is, is Europe trying to harmonize everything? I don't think that's necessarily the case. If you look at the bidding zone review, uh, that's actually about breaking big bidding zones into smaller pieces. That's part of a European process, which wouldn't happen at national level or very difficult. How many small um, pieces? That's an open question. Two, three, four. Two, three, four. How about per, 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 how, per bidding zone for the bigger ones? How about twenty thousand? Okay, that, that's a different discussion. No, but, that's, I know. Yeah. but that's when you get place. That's when you get place-based solutions. When you have 20,000 different prices, because there there's some heat, there there's some wind, there there's a factory, there there's district heating, there there's some geothermal. And, and if you don't respect that, you will get misallocation of resources on a heroic scale. Michael, we first need to get to the sneeze. You have no, we are speaking here in a German lender office, you have no idea what the resistance is in Germany to even have two zones. I have every idea. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm the sand in the oyster here. I'm going to say, it's, you know, two or four or six zones is absolutely insufficient. We need an episode on locational marginal pricing, uh, Dave, don't we? Sounds like a bestseller out there. <laughs> 
I want to open up to the floor uh, to the audience uh, in a moment. So please do, if you have a question, raise your hand or get thinking. Any final comments? Um, yes, Dennis. One more on the price signals. I agree overall that consumers should feel the price signals with one exception. Energy, I think, is also a basic need for households. So you need to safeguard a, a basic allowance saying this is the basic that people should be able to afford no matter what. Above that level, yes, it becomes open to price signals and people should react to scarcity. Agreed. Social protection, absolutely key. Uh, so I should have prefaced, should have put that at the beginning of my remarks, but I absolutely agree with that. But by the way, that is easier to, uh, uh, that is better to, every single piece of research has showed that um, overall energy subsidies, trying to push all energy prices down for everybody is a really bad way to provide social protection. Basically what we've done in Europe. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you see different schemes. This has been done quite often, um, not because necessarily governments wanted to, as far as I can see, but because they lacked the instruments. They didn't always have the tools to target those who are actually in need and then say, okay, then let's provide more rather than less and make sure at least we, uh, we, we reach to those who are vulnerable. And yes, we probably reach more and more. And it's very expensive, I fully agree. But it's difficult to target them and really reach only those who are in need. Right. And you end up with higher energy prices for all. So you don't level energy prices down. You actually end up leveling them up. Final comment on the pricing discussion. I think, Michael, you said we should pass price signals on to consumers, and of course we already do that, but we pass on the wrong price signals. Um, actually, a couple of years ago, we looked at levies, and they're disproportionately on the wrong fuels. Taxation is on the wrong fuels. So we have to do an awful lot of work to, to change that. But I think future episodes on pricing is in order. But on that, on, on taxation or on uh, price signals, is that where the carbon tax comes in, or the uh, ETS? Amongst many other factors, yes. But I think going go to that, we spend another half an hour, Dave. I think we need to perhaps um, take note and um, think about speakers, guests for the next we episode. Will. We will. Uh, any questions uh, from the audience? Yes, gentlemen in here. Is there, I think there might be, hopefully, a microphone coming to you uh, just in the, in the pink jumper right on the second row. Edwin Cornelius of uh, Ecos Environmental Coalition uh, Standards. Thank you, thank you very much for this uh, very interesting uh, debate. I have um, two questions, if I uh, may. So, Mr. Labour, you uh, depicted your five horsemen. Allow me to add one more, which is public support and public backing for the transition, and especially when it comes to infrastructure and electricity infrastructure. People do not like wind turbines in the backyard, and especially they do not like power lines in the backyard. And I do see this as a major threat for the realization of the energy transition. And my next question is about the blue hydrogen that you refer to. And then the question comes to how low in carbon should low carbon hydrogen be? And Europe is heading to 3.4 uh, kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of hydrogen, whereas the UK has already set the bar at 2.4. And my question is there, should the, UK, the EU follow the example of the UK? Thank you. Let's address the first question first on public acceptance of the energy transition. Maybe Katharina, from a German's perspective, a uh, very big debate in Germany. How is that being resolved? Well, <laughs> uh, for instance, it's for the big transmission lines, one, one way we resolve this is that we put cables under the ground uh, transmission lines, although that's recently I heard the number of six times I've heard lower numbers, but it's definitely way more expensive than do them overline. But that was to get this done. And I think there are cases where you have to take those decisions, but obviously you can't do that for all the infrastructure. Um, 
And yes, that remains a challenge. Can we, uh, we're talking about repurposing gas infrastructure. Can we not run cables through the old gas pipelines? Not transmission lines. Not transmission lines? No. Nope. I don't okay. think so. There's some, there's some physics and engineering, thermal, thermal, you know, you've got heat losses. Um, so I didn't, I, I could have had um, 25 horsemen or horsewomen. I could have had a whole horse posse, anything, because there are so many, you know, potential roadblocks. I kind of thought of the nimbyism as being part of what drives number four, the politics, the kind of, I call it social and political uh, inertia. And you're absolutely right. It's a huge problem. And I think, you know, it's part of their, you know, when I talk about fake debates, it's not just on one side, people promoting fake solutions. It's also on the side of, you know, renewables fans, renewables, uh, you know, uh, the renewables, well, but we have to accept. Wind and solar take up an enormous amount of space. People don't like them. They have legitimate reasons not to like them. They use a lot of resources in addition to land. Um, the, the minerals is a huge problem. Um, th there are no easy solutions. I mean, that was why I can, my five horsemen, I actually positioned them as five reasons to believe we will miss net zero 2050, right? So I'm, you know, in a sense, pessimistic. I actually think we'll get there shortly afterwards because at some point we'll get serious. Um, but, but it's a big problem. I, I'm a bit more optimistic, perhaps, Evan, than, than, than you are, um, uh, at least from, from your question. Um, I could tell you were quite pessimistic. Uh, there, I mean, there are examples. This is not widespread. You know, these are single examples, but there are examples where I think villages um, have really profited from clean energy uh, in their financial models to make that happen. And I think once you see that there's real benefit for the local economy, then I think there's a completely different perspective. Even you know, villages in Bavaria, you know, deep Bavaria, very conservative, don't like anything to do with, with clean energy. But if you have a model that actually provides benefits to the village, suddenly that shifts. Um, and I think that's so important to make sure that there are real local benefits. And it's not just something that's done to people, but it's done with people. And then the second question, when does blue hydrogen become low carbon hydrogen? I think it's when or how, what's the standards? I mean, the answer is... Um, not turning it into kilos of carbon, uh, but it's very clear that we need to have high 90%, 95-97% of carbon capture, and also upstream the methane emissions is a big problem, and that needs to be 0.1 or 0.2%. And we know we can do all these people running around going, it can't be done, it can't be done. This is nonsense. It's never been done because engineers have never been told to, do, to hit those levels, except in certain cases in you know, Norway and, and uh, the UK and a few others upstream in terms of methane emissions. Um, and also funding has never been provided. So carbon capture and storage projects that have been funded, a lot of it is post-combustion, which is very much harder. The engineers were told to hit 80%, not 97%. So we can do very low fugitive emissions upstream. We know because some parts of the world have done it. And we can do very high carbon capture rates because autothermal reform. Now, it'll be more expensive. That's what we need to do. Translate it into um, kilos per kilo. Uh, and it's got to be well under two. It's absolutely clear. Otherwise, because otherwise you've got to end up sort of buying offsets or doing something else. Um, because, of course, you know, if you're talking about a vastly expanded role for hydrogen, so if you took the existing demand, 94 million tons of hydrogen um, per year globally, and if you said, well, let's make that clean and it's a couple of kilos per kilo, then you end up with, you know, that's, that would be you know, 180 million tons of, of CO2. So it's, I, mean, I hate to say it, but not a big deal. But if you then expand the use of hydrogen uh, and you have 
three, four kilos or seven kilos, those sorts of numbers, then it's, we're wasting our time. So do we need legislation? Do we need to enshrine that in European law, in the taxonomy, those sort of things? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and yes, we do. And the other thing I want to say about those, the, that legislation, though, if I could bring in, if I can open another front and another episode, which is additionality, right? All the effort that is going into additionality, cut it, forget it, there is no additionality. That's nonsense, right? Uh, and we should put the effort into putting in proper hydrogen standards instead. And the reason I say additionality is nonsense is this is the way it really works when you're developing a green uh, project, a, a renewables project. You find a location and you can build wind or solar or whatever, and then you have to figure out who you're going to sell the electricity to, and you can sell it into a, you know, a, a contract for difference or into a feed-in tariff or into whatever. Or you can do a PPA, right, a power purchase agreement with a corporate, or you can either make hydrogen or sell to somebody else who's going to make hydrogen. It's the same hilltop, the same field, the same resource. And if you sell the hydrogen, if you make hydrogen with that renewable energy, then it is not available to decarbonize heating, transport, or the existing grid. All of the rules on additionality are a load of nonsense. All of them are a waste of time. Uh, any other questions from the audience? Oh, a couple. There we go. Um, uh, lady at the back in the middle with the red... Thing. Thank you. Um, Esther Bollendorf, I'm working for Climate Action Network, so NGO. I'm really interested in the decommissioning debate. Um, so, yeah, we heard it. Uh, we had discussions at the Madrid Forum, indeed. Um, we're working on the gas package. We're trying to get strong uh, provisions into the gas package. For me, it would be interesting from the audience to hear what are the next steps that we need to get to get to some sort of decommissioning framework or some sort of what, what is it what we need to go into that integrated planning that we, where we have different actors getting involved. Uh, you mentioned the regulators, but we have municipalities um, um, that we need to, to get to an, uh, an overall EU-wide uh, planning. So yeah, we're trying to get some uh, first steps into the, um, the gas package, but I think for the next commission, so we're ahead of a new also um, legislative um, cycle, uh, it's interesting to think about what do we need um, from the next commission. And I just wanted to get back to this discussion around the cables uh, into the pipes. I heard that idea floating around sim uh, several times. I find it quite attractive, I must say. But I would be interested, I mean, I'm not an engineer. I would be interested to, to understand better what is doable here or not. I can, I can attempt. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult one because we haven't figured this one out. Uh, yeah, I think a mandate for regulators would already be a significant step. I mean, there are examples at local level. Um, you know, the city of Winterthur in Switzerland um, held a referendum a while back, and uh, the municipality now has the mandate to decarbonize the um, gas grid and decommission the gas grid in large parts, um, in, install district heating, you know, electrify heating, use some, some biogas and biomass as well. But the mandate enables them to actually make the decisions um, because the, the, the people have been asked and given them the mandate. I think currently regulators still have a mandate that is out of date in many cases where it's about you know, how many people can you connect to the gas grid, uh, minimizing costs for consumers, but not net zero. So I think the mandate is an important 
part of this, but it's not going to solve all problems. But I think it is critical that we change the mandate for regulators flowing all the way down to municipalities. Just to complement this, I think the mandate should include overall the targets to work on net zero, so not just on efficiency and market integration, and then the specific power to decide on decommissioning and the process by which you go through it. So the consultation and all that, and taking care of the final consumers as well. And I would add, I mean, Michael, I heard you were very skeptical about top planning, and I agree with you, the implementation is at the lo local level. So I think what you would need is a framing of those people at the local level, because when you were talking about they should be bringing in geothermal, they have no, they are not skilled. So what we need is a framing from the top. So, okay, we get so much request bottom-up hydrogen that doesn't add up, here's the priorities. And then in addition, you need some sort of technical support because frankly if I imagine I would be sitting there running a commune I can even from a human point understand it that they try to sort it oh, maybe we're the lucky ones who get biogas so you, you, you have to so how, how do you see this because you're like oh you cannot do this from the top but I think there is a need to stand next to the so what do we do yeah I agree so I think I think you know uh, I was being polemic, saying, you know, because um, we were trying to open up the discussion in the early moments. It's become very vibrant since then, so we're doing fine. Um, but I think, you know, if you look at... Well, I've been doing some work with um, Jersey. Jersey, the island of Jersey, has got some homes that use gas. And actually, they've just had a, a tragic gas explosion in, by the way, a decommissioned section of gas pipeline. The people in the homes that were tragically killed didn't even have gas. They had a pipeline underneath their home. Um, but the question is, okay, so clearly there you've got a locality, you've got a municipality that absolutely wants to get rid of the gas. But the question is how? And I think the first thing you've got to do is, is find a date by which it will be done. Then you've got to find out what you replace it with and start to plan that. And then you've got to deal with, there is a company which owns an asset which you're now going to render valueless. And so you need at least those three pieces. I think that um, in all those cases, there has to be a top, there has to be a framework and there have to be mechanisms, almost like a menu to say, well, okay, if maybe you do have biogas, maybe you've got, a, maybe it's a farming area and there is some biodigesters and you've got some biogas, well, fine. Then here are the processes, here are, here's the regulatory framework, the support framework for that. And then you say, okay, well, we can do we can do 20% using that. Then you've got to do some electrification. But then you need to have, if you're electrifying the heat, then you need to make sure that there is enough electricity. So you've got to coordinate that with the transmission grid and the local uh, distribution grid and so on. So there's, I think that it is top-down, top-down create the menu, but bottom-up, you decide what do you order? What's your starter? What's your main course? What your drink is? And so on. And And between the two, you agree the date. Is it 2050 for everybody? Or is it, in the case of Winter Tour 2035, in the case of Jersey 2032, uh, and so on? Or is it one size fits all? We'll come back, we'll come back to that. Grab, grab someone in the coffee break. I want to get to some more questions from the audience, please. Um, yeah, there's a question down the front here, please. 
Thank you very much, Anna Pandera from Energy Warsaw. And thank you for mentioning locational pricing because I also think this is, is extremely relevant um, in order to get more engagement from local communities uh, to act. Uh, we see price spikes everywhere. It creates a lot of tension and anxiety. And by the way, I think it's also uh, something which could uh, limit a little bit or increase uh, public acceptance for different investments uh, related with energy transition because people could see benefits uh, related with this. But I'm just wondering because how you see the process, uh, le also legislation um, in the EU and decision-making process because now we are finalizing uh, electricity market design debate. So um, do you see that it may be open again after European Commission um, will be created, new one will be established? Uh, so how, how the process uh, could look like. I see it uh, as a topic which is extremely poisoned, so uh, extremely controversial, political, and really there is a substance uh, in the discussion lacking on the EU level. So how to change it uh, and how to start the process? Uh, as not only we talk in, in smaller rooms that locational pricing is nice, but then nothing happens. Thank you. I can speak to how it, uh, the one point you made, which is about how it deals to a certain extent with the NIMBY problem. Because if you've got wind farms and solar and the benefits of that, that you know, go off and they're diffuse across the whole country, you don't see the benefits, then of course you're against it. But if you see that your price of electricity keeps going to zero, every time it's windy, every time it's sunny, you get zero cost electricity. And now you buy an electric vehicle and a heat pump, and you're laughing. This is fantastic. And I think what that can do is deal with the nimbyism. And if we could get that process started, you would then have some public support. There'd be other people going, well, why can't we do that here? Why can't we do that? And of course, that doesn't deal with the people who would suffer from that, the ones who probably in big cities can't do wind farms and solar. And so they will worry that they will be left you know, holding, the, holding the can. And also, some of those people in inner cities and so on are people who are less well off. So you need to deal with the vulnerability issue. How that translates into an EU process, I have no idea. Absolutely none. So that's definitely for my colleagues on the panel. Yeah. yeah, maybe two comments on this. Um, I've heard many statements over the last decades when people say, okay, this is the one, the final review, and then we'll stop. Um, it has never worked that way. There's always new issues coming up. So, I mean, I, I can't predict the time, but I'm, I'm pretty sure sooner or later a new questions will arise and there'll be a need to reopen electricity, gas, hydrogen, uh, all the energy uh, sectors at some moment in time. And then, of course, you need the proper process to go through. What I think we shouldn't forget, there's a, there's a very strong focus here inside the EU for good reason, but the EU is also an example for many outside the EU. If we speak to countries who are outside Europe, they're looking around to see how to decarbonize their energy system, and they look for good examples, and they often look at Europe. So, the, of course, Europe should get it right for the EU, but it's also important for others to say, well, actually, what can you do? What is a good model that works? Uh, and it's very, very complicated. Sometimes it's actually worth looking outside of the EU for solutions, too. I mean, actually, locational marginal pricing is a very good example. Yeah, the UK. Widely, widely used the UK in the US for, for decades, right? And and we we can look at what what they've done, not copy it, um, you know, not do the same thing, but learn from it. Uh, so there's an awful lot of experience with this mechanism. And sometimes it feels to me in the debate in Europe that we're having uh, that we think this is the first time people have even thought about it. Uh, so I think look at other countries uh, and learn uh, could be a really good first step. 
can I add to that an area of study, perhaps? No uh, UK promotion. So, no, 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 no. I just did the, the UK bit about how we lead on decarbonisation. I just did. Um, but, I, um, but no, the, a question with locational marginal pricing, um, if we're going to be researching it, and I think we absolutely have to, you know, that, that it's just such an, it's so obviously needed, right? I would take that almost as red. But can you get there in an evolutionary process? Or do you have to do something like the Big Bang that we did in financial services in the UK, do you need to do, you know, liberalisation in a, in, a, in, you know, do you need to do everything in one go or can you evolve towards it? Because I think quite rightly, people are worried about risk. And if you have to do it in a big bang, then there might be vulnerable people who suffer. There might be price spikes. There might be all sorts of things going on. Uh, investment in renewable assets might just stop until people work out what price signal gets all the way down to the wind farm. So, can you evolve? And I don't know, maybe, Jan, you already know the answer or anybody who's worked on it, or maybe that's an area that we could think about. What are the kind of three steps to locational marginal pricing that then addresses the risk question? Maybe if I come, and come in from the German perspective, there is one player that we haven't talked about at all, that's industry. So that's the key player, obviously, the industrial structure we already have and that builds on people that have invested um, with a certain expectation about market structure and the prices that arise from that. Uh, that is, uh, just to say, politically, uh, is the key issue. And so uh, if we might be forced to split our one bidding zone in several, I think that would be a first step to see how that then plays out. And I assume that there would be some kind of subsidy or help or or to to industrial players because people also don't want to lose their jobs. So so that element I think is key in how this plays out politically. Um, but if that should turn out not to be the catastrophe everyone thinks it might be, then I think we can go on from there. But I think that's a really interesting point because you know, what you've got is, is this kind of moment in time, surely, where German industry has to rethink its model of reliance on cheap gas to, you know, to make things work. And you know, there was a moment in Japan after Fukushima where they could have really re reformed their electrical grid. They, 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 you know, separation of uh, generators and retailers and uh, integrating, you know, they've got these kind of local monopolies and they missed the opportunity. They just missed it. And my worry is that Germany will miss the opportunity to have some very tough conversations with their manufacturing industry. Because, you know, if we're supposed to have five sigma, six sigma reliable electricity at the same price for everybody right across Germany, whether it's needed or not, right? whether you can do demand response or not, but you have a right to that sort of quality of clean power everywhere in Germany just because you're a manufacturer, then somebody needs to work out how much that costs. What is the bill for that? Because it is billions and billions, tens of billions of euros per year forever. Absolutely. I think we've got time for just one more question, and there is a question on from our online audience. I want to include them as well. Um, so please, uh, we'll just include a question from them. Thanks a lot. Um, we get a question on metals and materials to expand the, the sphere. So um, you spoke about pillaging of the global south to build out the metals and mineral economy that underpins electrons. So what's the best way of incentivizing mining companies to avoid the practices we associate with the extractivism of the fossil era? What's the number one thing the EU should do to provide these um, incentives? That's from James Cantor. 
an incentive from uh, clean, clean, more ethical mining, I guess, very quickly? It's not a new problem, right? I mean, the ethics of supply chains, we've had to deal with in... Uh, you know, food with the palm oil, we've had to deal with it in clothing, you know, so we, we kind of have a bunch of frameworks to bear down on companies that are bad actors. And um, so we, we, need to, we need to use all of those. So we need much more transparency of supply chains and we need regulation that says if you don't follow, you know, uh, best practice, then you cannot, not only can you not sell, but, but you're, you know, we need to know what's inside our electric cars and our heat pumps and our wind turbines and so on. Um, and it's not a trivial solution. It's not trivial. We also need a lot of technology because, by the way, you know, we can also, you look at cobalt, we can improve the quality, we can improve the, the human rights performance of cobalt extraction. We can also replace cobalt. By the way, it's not clear which is better for people living in the DRC. So the answer is, a lot of things need to be done, and they need to be done with real kind of um, resources, good faith, and intensity, not just sort of allowed to, uh, you know, to, to happen somehow and just hope for the best. You hope for the best, you'll end up with the worst. Just um, two recommendations. Um, this is a broad topic, but there are two excellent books on this topic of mining. One is called Vold Rush uh, by a former Financial Times uh, journalist, and the other one is called Material World by Ed Conway. I think they're both amazing books, really good, uh, looking at the challenges, but also, I think, have some space for optimism. So I would suggest reading those if um, the person who asked the question has the time to do that. Absolutely. Sadly, that is all we have time for this week. Uh, my thanks go to Dennis, Katharina, and Michael, uh, to Jan and Michaela, the staff here, at North Rhine-Westphalia EU offices, uh, the AV team, uh, and to our lovely audience. If you have any questions for the team or our panelists, you can tweet the show at whatmatterspod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you uh, so much for listening and we'll see you all again next time. Thank you.